The Fabulous 50s, Part 10, TV, Part 1. In the closing years of the 40s, Newsweek reported that there are still those whom television itself, with its fledgling productions and unsure reception, is something like the Zeppelin, a great modern invention that doesn't quite work. Rapid progress soon forced the magazine to eat its assessment. The reception improved, programming stabilized, and black and white picture was added a color rainbow, if not always of the most natural use. CBS broadcast the first color picture in 1951 with images of a trip to a zoo, a football game, an artistic scan of Picasso's painting. Until an industry standard was adopted, the color of your favorite star could vary from week to week from television set to television set. The joke in the industry was the acronym for the organization striving for standard colors, the NTSC, the National Television System Committee, actually stood for never the same color. Nonetheless, viewers loved color, any color, and in the 50s, those who could not afford a pricey color set, $1,000 for an RCA, bought a rectangle of rainbow-hued plastic and taped it over the screen. Green for grass was the bottommost shade, blue for sky was the uppermost band. The swatch of red roughly corresponded to the height of a character's face where they might fall if standing. If the character was seated or the scene was indoors, the effect is said to have been at best surrealistic. Other two innovations in the 50s. Canned Laughter. Television's first sitcom employed a tape track of human voices chuckling, cackling, and caterwauling to let the home viewers know that an incident was supposed to be funny. Well, it was much forgotten 1950s, the Hank McCune Show. There are chuckles and yucks dubbed in, viewed variety, informing television owners that in truth the show is lensed on film without a studio audience. Still, the entertainment paper forecast a bright future for fake merriment. Whether this induces a jovial mood in, in home viewers is still to be determined, but the practice may have unlimited possibilities if spread to include canned peals of hilarity, thunderous ovations, and gasps of sympathy. TV writers groping in the history for a precedent to canned laughter came up with the Greek chorus. Thus, the practice was not kitsch, but a variant of a venerable tradition. Nielsen Ratings while audiences heard canned laughter, television advertisers listened to the compiled statistics of Arthur Charles Nielsen's company. In 1923, Arthur Charles Nielsen founded a market research company to investigate consumer tastes and appreciations of product. From measuring sales at supermarkets, he branched out in 1952 to surveying TV viewers on their favorite weekly fare. The sample population was small, the statistical method questionable, the results probably not truly representative of national tastes. Nonetheless, TV executives and sponsors needed some quantitative measure of a show's success, and Nielsen, with his ratings, amassed power and an empire. Years later, when the weaknesses in the polling system were pointed out, the Nielsen ratings were so ensconced that complaints fell on stone-deaf ears. Invariably, popular shows with high ratings praising the system and unpopular programs with lower ratings damned the numbers. But as the cliché goes, history is written by the victors. In every season, there was a cheering of victors to champion the rating system. Two years after the Nielsen ratings were unleashed, futuristic writer H.G. Wells watched the new medium and predicted of its future fare, quote, Nothing but parades, an endless newsreel of parades and sports. Sports, yes, parades too, 
But what he did not envision was that the most consistently popular kind of TV fare would be the sitcom. But first, in brief, here's how the decade opened. Garraway at Large, starring the easy-mannered Dave Garraway, was one of NBC's most popular programs in 1950. The host introduced songs, skits, and guest stars, and then became a fixture of the station's Today Show, which launched the early morning news and special feature genre programs. What's My Line? The granddaddy of television quiz panel shows, a staple of the 50s. Debuted in 1950 with John Daly and columnist Dorothy Kilgallen and actress Arlene Francis as panelists. They were eventually joined by Bennett Cerf and Steve Allen, a show that my family watched every week. The Jack Benny Show debuted October 1950, bringing from radio the deadpan comedian himself, plus his familiar cast of characters, sidekick Rochester, vocalist Dennis Day, and wife Mary Livingston. Marilyn Monroe made her TV debut on the show. You Bet Your Life, premiering October 1950 and hosted by Groucho Marx, was the first show of comedy quiz format. With good nature announcer George Fenneman, the butt of Groucho's comic jibes, Home viewers eagerly waited to see if a contestant might utter the secret word, prompting a groucho-looking duck to descend from the ceiling with a bill full of cash. So a losing contestant might not go home broke, Groucho resorted to his easy question, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Typical of the exchanges between the host and the contestant, Groucho. Are you married, Georgette? Contestant, yes, I've been married for 31 years to the same man. Groucho, well, if he's been married for 31 years, he's not the same man. The Kate Smith Hour, brought to television in 1950, the country's most popular full-voice singer, as well as her trademark song, When the Moon Comes Over the Mountain. The Roy Rogers Show, 1950, introduced the cowboy, his wife Dale Evans, his horse Trigger, and his dog Bullet to television's first generations of kitty viewers. For somewhat different fare, children in 1950 could switch dials and catch the opening line, It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman, of the Adventures of Superman, starring George Reeves in the dual role as Clark Kent and the man from the planet Krypton. And I watched that all the time. I didn't really like the Roy Rogers show, but I loved Superman. The following year, children were introduced to Mr. Wizard, one of the medium's most successful educational programs. Mr. Wizard Don Herbert dramatically demonstrated simple scientific principles, amusing and educating kids, and earning for the show two Emmy nominations in its 14-year run. It spawned more than 5,000 Mr. Wizard science clubs across the United States and Canada. For the preschool toddler audience, there was Miss Frances, Dr. Frances Horwich, who presided over the Ding Dong School in grandmotherly fashion. Mothers across America got a breather when the school bell rang and Miss Frances entertained home tots with sing-along stories, games, and instructions on drawing and coloring. Now, I never watched that show, but in Baltimore, we had Romper Room, where a woman did pretty much the exact same thing. George Burns and Gracie Allen Show, premiere, October the 12th, 1950. George, what do you think of television? Gracie, I think it's wonderful. I hardly ever watch radio anymore. With their own blends of zany humor, the vaudeville team of Burns and Allen debuted in a long-running weekly TV series that opened with cigar-wielding George Burns delivering a monologue, usually about his muddle-headed wife and her cockamamie logic. Gracie's the kind of girl who shortens the cord on an electric iron to save electricity. 
The cast regulars included perpetually perplexed next-door neighbor Blanche, B. Bernadette, and Henry Morton, Hal March, the Burns' real-life son Ronnie, and announcer Harry Von Zell. More unconventional than Gracie's humor was the show's clever device of having George Burns suddenly step out of his sitcom character to deliver a private aside to the home audience, or to predict what was about to happen. As when George winked at viewers and said, According to my calculations, Harry Von Zeele should be over at the Mortons, and by now Gracie should have him mixed up in this too. Let's take a look. The gimmick of Burns being on television at the same time was he was watching himself on television, as was the audience, took getting used to, but proved highly effective. Equally surreal was the show's announcer, Von Zell, also a sitcom character. If the show had one star, it was Gracie Allen. The program's producer, Ralph Levy, felt her success derived from the fact was first an actress, then a comedian. Gracie was one of the finest actresses that ever lived, and the word actress is crucial. True, she played the silliest woman you could ever meet, but she never thought of herself as a comedian, and George never treated her as one. Much of her character's humor stemmed from taking statements literally, as when Harry Von Zell recommended a doctor who had hundreds of nervous patients, Gracie responded he can't be so good if he makes all of his patients nervous. In 1958, Gracie decided to leave the series, retiring from a lifetime in show business. Though the program played for another year with all of its other characters, things were not the wacky same without goofballs going on with Gracie. And two, the audience missed George Burns' sign-off line, Say Goodnight, Gracie, and Gracie's wide-eyed, innocent goodnight delivered as the previous half-hour of frustrations and misunderstandings had never occurred as they had not been by her own logic. Now, those are some of the early shows. Next time, we're going to get into I Love Lucy, Our Mrs. Brooks, and so forth and so on. So we'll be looking at some of the original TV. Now, the source for this is Panati's Parade of Fads, Follies, and Manias, The Origins of Our Most Cherished Obsessions by Charles Panati. So I hope you enjoyed that. And as always, don't forget to come by the website sumahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise. And if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.